Hallelujah! Christ is risen. So picture this. Someone says, oh, maybe, okay, maybe, maybe you're a teenager. Go back to these days. And uh, your parent is leaving for the day. And uh, so they say, I'm headed out. I'm going to go, you know, wherever they're going. Until I get back or while I'm gone. Um, you know, for me, it was, uh, you know, something like mow the lawn. Or while I'm gone, can you guys sweep out the garage? Um, or while I'm gone, right? There's, there, sometimes there's a task to do. And then when I get back, we will go together to uh, swim at Lake Elmo or something like that, right? See you then. What someone says to us right before they leave often contains pretty important information about that time when they're gone, right? It's kind of weird sometimes uh, if you and your spouse or you and your kids, right, you have kind of a liturgy of saying goodbye, all right, I'm off, bye, see ya. And there's the sound of the door opening and the, you know, the, the door sweep pulling across the entry and mat and there's the whole, the whole thing. And if you just like sneak out of your house and you're gone and you don't say, uh, hey, I'm going to this or bye or, you know, it's, it's maybe not that big of a deal, right? You're, you're going to come back, Lord willing, and you'll be re- reunited again. But we're kind of used to a certain, I say this, you say that, I'm going to this place. Etc., etc. And as we approach the end of the Easter feast and remember when Jesus ascended, not to be seen again until his second coming, we turn our eyes to how Jesus prepared his church for his departure. We're nearing the end of the Easter season. Pentecost is coming soon. Then, after that, the Sunday of the Holy Trinity. And then we're in the Sundays after Pentecost for like 25 weeks or something like that. Jesus is ascended. The church is growing, waiting for his return. So now in these last days before Jesus' ascension, the gospel readings turn to his preparation for the church. He knows he's going to be leaving, preparing a place for us, and then coming back to take us there so we can be with him forever. And until he comes back, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, double underline, bold italic, those who believe in me will do my works. We're going to continue his work. He's given us something to do while he's away. And we are going to be supported in that task by his promise to do what we ask of him when we pray to him. We're going to unpack all of those pieces here now over the next 13 minutes or so. So he starts off, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's house. If it weren't so, would I be telling you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Like, guys. I'm not lying to you. This is not a trick. I'm going to prepare your mansion. While I'm gone, here's what you're supposed to do. I'm going to come back so that you can be with me where I am always. Why does Jesus say, don't let your hearts be troubled? Well, right before this, in John chapter 13, he has just told them that one of his group, who had been with him day and night for the last three years, is going to betray him. He has just said, where I am going very soon, you cannot come. He's their leader. He's their friend, their guide. And he's saying, I'm, you're going um, to lose me. You can't follow me where I'm about to go. And then after Peter says, no way, Jesus, we're not going to leave you. I would lay down my life for you. <laughs> he says to Peter, the thing that 
has become the logo of our church. Oh, really, Peter? You're going to lay down your life for me? Really? You're actually going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. That's kind of a lot to just lay on them. So he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is all good news, actually, because I'm leaving. I'm returning to the Father in order to prepare a place for you to join me so you can always be with me there. And you know the way there. Well, Thomas says, "Um, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Which is actually a pretty reasonable answer to Jesus, isn't it? I'm leaving, and uh, you know the way to where I'm going. Okay, well, are you going to Glencoe or Hutchinson or New Ulm? Or are you going to morning coffee? Or are you going to get groceries? Are you going to the gym? Where are you going? I don't know the like, unless we know where you're going, how can we know the way to where you're going? And Jesus then says this famous bit of scripture, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as modern Midwestern Christians, we hear exclusivity in that. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Not a way or a truth or a life. As ancient Middle Eastern Jews, they heard way and truth and life as related concepts that overlap each other. Because they were remembering scriptures like this, Psalm 119, verse 30, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. From Psalm 16, verse 11, you will show me, God, the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. That's what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to prepare a place for you to live with me forever. Or maybe they were thinking of Proverbs 15, 24. The path of life leads upward for the wise. They leave the grave behind. Way, truth, life. Not three separate things that Jesus is claiming to be. But rather he is saying truth and life. And the way to all of these things, that's what I am. That's why you know the way. It's not like, do you know the way on a map to where I am going? Christians, you know the way because you know Jesus. Now, this sounds great, Jesus, but can you show us God's glory? Is what Philip says. Oh, good old Philip. Jesus claims to divinity here slip right by. He has just said things about himself that are only true about God. Who can show the way of life? Who can lead someone out of the grave? Who has ultimate truth? Not any prophet or teacher or rabbi or miracle worker. Only God himself can say those things. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. I am those things. And Philip says, okay, Jesus, um, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Like, uh, maybe it sounded something like, uh, um, Okay, Jesus, uh, what if you just showed us the Father? That would help us out a lot. Totally missing everything that Jesus just said. Jesus sounds a little annoyed or even exasperated by Philip, doesn't he? Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Sometimes I feel like Jesus could say that to me. 
Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Carl? Maybe you've heard that as well. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I've been showing you the Father for three years, Philip. And Philip's question, for the record, is not a bad one. It's not even that disrespectful. It just shows that he's not really grasping what has been happening. Because asking to see God's glory is a great request. And it puts him in the company of Moses and Isaiah. In Exodus 33, Moses says to God, Show me your glorious presence. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And you might remember how the rest of that goes. The, the six-winged seraphim, right? They fly with two wings, and they cover their faces with two, and they cover their feet with another two, and they cry, Holy, holy, holy! Lord God of Sabaoth, the whole earth is full of your glory. Which sounds a lot like our Sanctus that we sing every time we have communion. And that's no accident, by the way. A vision of the Lord in his temple. We sing the song that they sing. Anyway, Philip is like, yeah, let's have one of those experiences. Moses saw it. Isaiah saw it. Jesus, you're here and you're better. You know, you're, you surpass those guys. Give us the vision of God's glory. Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 5, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. Philip is asking for something that God promised to do. He just doesn't realize that he's looking right at it in Jesus Christ, the tradesman from Nazareth. Jesus is frustrated because whoever has seen Jesus has seen the fullness of God. Holy Trinity Sunday is a few weeks away. And we're not going to get into this now. We're going to say the Athanasian Creed, all of 1,000 words of it, or something like that together. So prepare yourselves. Anyway, there is no part of God that is outside of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He's not the Holy Spirit. He's not the Father. But it's not like a part of the full divinity is in the flesh and blood of Jesus. And then there's some of it reserved somewhere out there in heaven that is not also contained in him. So Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. There's nothing else out there. There's no other part of God out there for me to show you that you haven't walked with and eaten with and fist bumped with and served people with. In Deuteronomy 18, 18, God promises to Moses about the Israelites in some future time. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. And people thought, well, maybe that's Samuel, maybe that's Elijah, maybe that's Elisha, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or any of the twelve. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Amos, Obadiah, none of them. John 14, verse 10, Jesus says, Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? Get this. The words I speak are not my own, but the Father does his works through me. That's exactly what God said he was going to do. I will put my words in his mouth. Jesus says, I speak not my own words, but the Father's words. So Jesus 
has now gotten this through their heads, or at least they're starting to understand this. And while Jesus is going now to prepare our place, their thoughts turn to, okay, then what are we, you're leaving, what, what happens to us? What are things going to be like when you're gone? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. What are the greater works that we are going to do? How can we be doing greater things than what fully God and fully man Jesus did during his ministry? Well, the works that the apostles and the church do, because we're included in this. He's not just talking about those disciples in the room who had the Last Supper with him. He's talking about us, the church. Whoever believes in him will do his works and even greater works. And the works are greater because Jesus' entire ministry was contained within a pretty small region. Probably not bigger than Sibley County. The entire life and times of the Lord Jesus. All the miracles, all the preaching, the feeding of the 5,000. If you look at that on a map, it's not that big of an area. So one of the ways that our works are greater is that through the church, the gospel has reached the ends of the earth, all the way out here in Mulkey Township. We're a long way from Jerusalem. And that greater work has happened because of the church, because of those who believed in Jesus over the past 2,000 years. The, the, the other way that our works are greater than the works of Jesus is because all of the miracles that Jesus did are surpassed in glory and wonder and power by things that happen in the church. When Jesus raised someone from the dead, that person died again. When Jesus multiplied food to feed 5,000 people, they were hungry again at supper time. When Jesus snatches someone out of the jaws of death and sin and Satan through the waters of holy baptism, that person is granted eternal life. And that person will never die eternally. When we come to the altar and receive Jesus' own body and blood, we are fed with something that will never leave us hungry. That's greater than a bunch of loaves and fish that Jesus multiplied by the power of the Holy Spirit. What happens in holy baptism, holy communion, and the Holy Spirit's work in the church surpasses even the most incredible miracles. And the final thing here, will Jesus really do whatever we ask in his name? The short answer is no. I mean, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, that I will do. So anything that could possibly come to your mind. Lord, in your name, Lord Jesus, I want to raise. In your name, Lord Jesus, I want a new house. In your name, Lord Jesus, a new car or a closet full of clothes. Or in your name, Lord Jesus, I want my candidate to get elected. Or in your name, Lord Jesus, I want this person to just stop being so annoying and be more like me so that there's less friction between us. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to answer all of those prayers. We've got to understand what it means to ask something in Jesus' name. It doesn't just mean you tack on these words at the end, in Jesus' name, amen. To pray in his name means to pray according to his will, according to his character. It means asking for things that he wants to say yes to, asking for things that he's promised to say yes to, like right here. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. 
He's, he's been saying, if you believe in me, then you're going to do the works that I do. That is preaching the good news, bringing the light of the gospel into all of the dark corners of the world that are living under the chains and oppression of sin. And you're going to do greater works than these because you're going to do this. That's not good. Across the entire world. Whereas I only did it in our own country. And the power that is in holy baptism and the power that is in the meal that I just told you to do in remembrance of me is greater than any miracle you saw me do over these last three years. And as you're doing these works, as you're doing our works while I'm gone, you're going to be talking to me about them. You're going to need help. You're going to need wisdom. You're not always going to know what to do, the right thing to say, the right thing to do. So pray to me about them. And the help that you ask for as you work to spread the gospel, to share my love with the world, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to hear your prayers and answer them. Praying in Jesus' name means asking for things that he wants to say yes to. Let's tie this all together. Right? What someone says to us right before they leave is important. Why? Because it oftentimes tells us what we need to know about the time when they're gone. It's a really good thing Jesus didn't just disappear. Then what would we... I mean, if he didn't tell us what to do or what we should be concerned with, we'd all just be left to ourselves. But in fact, he has prepared us for this time now that we live in when he is gone. And he said this, he's not just disappearing. He didn't just vanish, never to return. He's going to prepare a place for us. In fact, right now, as I speak and as you hear, he is busy. And he is busy preparing your mansion. Your room in the Father's house, he said. He also told us this. He's the only way to God because he is God. He was very clear about this. We can't get distracted or mixed up or confused while he's gone thinking that he's just one good option among several. He made it crystal clear. He is the only way to God because he is God come to us. And while he's away, he wants us to continue the work that he started. That is, he wants us to keep announcing the love of God in the gospel. We have a job to do, church. We're not a social club. We don't just come here on Sunday mornings to get our gas tank filled up or to just do it because we've always been doing it. What we do here is we're like recalibrated. We're encouraged. I guess in a way we are getting our tank filled up because God wants us to go out over the course of our lives, whatever he's called us to in our families, in our work, at school, and empty ourselves out. Share the love of God with others. What we're doing here at this very moment, church, is part of the work that Jesus said is greater than his works. So next time you feel like, man, church is kind of boring. This is the greater work. This is the greater work. When we gather together as the church, when we share God's love with those who are ready to hear it, when we meet needs that Jesus would meet if he were here, think of all the people that he helped. All of the oppressed that he gave special attention to, all of the hungry that he fed, the sick that he healed, the mercy that he had on everyone he saw. 
All of those things sound normal, but they're exactly what Jesus expects to find us doing when he comes back. So, and this might get a little like, oh, is he talking about me? I might be. When we're more serious about hunting or fishing or farming or 4-H or sports tournaments or ag shows or recovering from Saturday night's decisions, then we are about doing the work of the church, work that Jesus said truly Truly, if you believe in me, you will do these things. What kind of position are we putting ourselves in? He could come back. There were times when my dad came back and we had not swept that garage. You can ask him about that later. It was maybe just one time. What position are we putting ourselves in? Jesus is our master. It's never a bad time to hear this. We all need to hear this often. Some of you might need to hear it real bad this morning. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That means something for our lives now until Jesus returns or until you fall asleep in his arms awaiting the day of the resurrection. And for those of you who are troubled by the sense that like this is not enough, we got to do church, but there's like other organizations we've got to be part of. There's other work that has to be done. I need to do more. We need to do more. There's more work that we have to do. This is the good news for you this morning. Jesus has done all of the work. He has done it all. Through ordinary mundane things like weekly gathering here in his name, called by his spirit, to hear the words of Jesus, to receive the gifts of Jesus, We are obeying his directives, and we are regularly, routinely, through the seasons of our life, empowered, encouraged, and equipped to do the works of Jesus. So right now, you are exactly where your Lord wants you to be. This morning is not a call to some extra, super intense level of devotion. Instead, I believe what the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that or to remember is that Jesus gave his church instructions for the time when he was gone. And I want to comfort you. And I also don't want you to think like, oh, I was here on the day that he said, it's bad to be out farming instead of being at church. So yes, go me. Or like, you know, I'm not hung over this morning. So yes, go me. Pastor was pretty intense today, but whew, I slid right on through, and the ump called safe. We all are addressed by this. And we all are comforted by this, that the greater works Jesus has for us is what we're doing right now. And as we live out by the Spirit's leading the truth of the gospel, as we hunt and fish and farm and are part of 4-H and we're at ag shows, and we're at sports tournaments for our kids, and we're out socializing, having fun, responsibly. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will, 
May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. To him be glory. Amen.